because we're recording it, I'll use this and we'll just keep it low. Good evening. I want to uh, affirm you for making it here this evening. I would bet every single one of you had obstacles to overcome to get here. Uh, the enemy doesn't like it when we actually learn the word. And so often we have to overcome all those obstacles. And you obviously did. And so glad you're here. This is knowing God and making him known. It's an overview of biblical theology with a relational focus. I'm never going to say that again. It will either be biblical theology or relational theology just because that was way too much to say. Why are we doing a class like this? Because I just like, no. <laughs> we want to do a class... Uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.1 and 2 Timothy 4.3 talks about in the last days, many will be led astray or many will fall away and they'll be deceived. And in a situation where I think God's intent is that the kingdom is ever increasing, the ploy of the devil is to deceive us from the word and then we end up getting hurt and falling away. A friend of ours in South Africa just posted something Mary was sharing with me today from a, of a prophetic word in their leaders gathering that we need to teach the word because as these days are progressing, more and more we'll get led astray. And so we need to be sure and teach the word. Plus we wanna be like those uh, Bereans who wouldn't examine the scriptures. So, you can tell that I'm a teacher and not an artist. What is that? It, it's an iceberg. We have some notes that Mary will pass out for you if you'd like them. Anyone who wants them? Some of you take notes on your, own, on your iPad or your phone. Some of you don't like to take notes. My uh, wonderful assistant, no, my fantastic wife, typed all these up. She's actually going to write everything up on the board in, in a few minutes. I'm often asked theological questions as we uh, minister in different places in the world. I often get asked all these questions and after a number of years I began to realize that most of the questions people have are like the tip of the iceberg. They're the parts you see, but it's the part that's under the water, the foundation of our theology that often determines our question. And after a number of years, I began to realize that how people asked a question would give me a clue to what was their under the water belief. And so rather than just deal with the questions, I thought, wouldn't it be better to make sure that what we have under the, the water is actually the Bible. And then the questions will come easy. So, have anyone ever had any questions? Is everything the will of God? We just write some questions up there, up on the, up on the board. There's some up there already. I'm going to start off with the first one. Is everything that happens the will of God? Anyone else ever have any questions? What are the questions you've had? Is God in control? Which version of the rapture is right? Well, what if there's no rapture? Oh, no! <laughs> is everything that happens the will of God? Anyone really fast? 
fast rider? <laughs> Is God in control? Which version of the rapture is right? What other questions? Here's your chance. We're going to answer all these questions before we're finished. Has, has everything already been decided? Anything we could answer? No. <laughs> Did Adam have a belly button? No. Did you have one? Will they? Will they? Will the household be saved? What is salvation? What actually happens at salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Are miracles still for today? What happens with those who have never heard the gospel? There you go. Kathy first, and then Lisa. Ah, there's a good one. When you die, do you go straight to heaven, or do you wait in the grave until Jesus returns? Lisa. Is Israel still the chosen nation? Good question. Oh. If you get cremated, will you actually rise if you wait in the grave until Jesus comes? Kathy? Are there levels of hell? I've been some places that seem like, no. <laughs> okay, these are some good questions. Oh, one more. What are the rules for a trip? Now, that's a great question because we're going to get to that right now. That's where we're starting. I, I, actually, I actually keyed him up. You, you get coffee for that afterwards. <laughs> We're actually going to do this. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's a doc. Okay, we're not going to focus on the questions first. We're going to focus on building biblically a biblical perspective, a biblical theology. And then after we've done that, we'll answer the questions. Okay? Because in answering the questions, I'd have to do this anyway. Almost for every question, there's a whole underlying area of belief that you have to deal with. And often that underlying belief is subconscious. We've been taught things that aren't necessarily the Bible, but we don't know why we believe them. We don't know where they came from. And so we have to be able to deal with those things first. So that's, that's our goal. First part of this course is gonna be building that foundation, and then the second part we'll get to the questions. Uh, and I'm still toying with maybe I'll have you answer the questions. Because what we're going to do, I'm not going to teach you what you believe. I'm going to teach you how to study the Bible so you can determine what it says for you. Okay, the reason many will fall away in the last day is they don't know how to actually go to the Word. How do I find out if what this person's saying is actually biblical? It feels good. The problem is, feeling good isn't the criteria. So, I'm going to ask you to do this. Your first assignment, 
Read the Bible. I'm serious. Start now. This course is supposed to go on for three months, and then we're going to take a three-month break, and then we're going to come back for those who want to for the next three months. But read the Bible. Okay? And as much as you can, read it without filters. Now, what does that mean? We all have these filters. We all have things that we've been taught that often color how we read the Bible and interpret it. Mary, you uh, tell us your, your uh, hiking story. Russ asked me to tell the story, and it really, this is not just a story, it really happened. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. For the recording, Russ is handing me his... <laughs> His microphone. <laughs> I just wanted to stand close to her. It's got a longer cord, but of course I'm not going to give it to her. Okay, many years ago when our youngest son was 14, we went um, to the Grampians, which is in Victoria, and we had a little cabin, and one day we did a drive up to the top of this mountain and went on a hike. So we went hiking along this cliff top quite a long ways and Russ was leading and the boys were behind him and I was just looking at all the rocks and plants and things and not really paying attention to exactly where we were going. So we did this beautiful hike and we got to the place where we could look down the cliff and we could actually see the house that we were staying in. And of course the boys were 14 at that time, um, my son and his friend, and they decided they would like to go down the cliff to get back to the house. And Russ said, yeah, you can do that, but I'm coming with you. So um, it was up to me to get back to the car and bring it back down the drive, <laughs> down the mountain to the house. So I said, not a problem. So he hands me the keys and I take off back down the trail. Well, because I was in the back, I hadn't really been paying attention to where we were going. And I just hiked along and hiked along, came to this rocky place and then somehow I did a, a turn and the trail went off this way. And suddenly, I'm thinking, there's no one around. Nothing really looks familiar here. Um, I wonder if this is the right trail. But I just kept walking along, and then I start praying. Okay, Lord, will you send me someone um, that I can ask if this is the right trail? And then off in the distance, these hikers start coming towards me. And I said, oh, it's so nice to see you. Um, do you guys happen to have a map? And they pulled out a map. Can you show me on the map where we are? And they showed me uh, where we were on the map. And I'm thinking, that can't be right. That cannot be right. That is nowhere near where my car is. And so I just said, thank you very much. And I'm thinking in my head, they, they are so wrong. I'm <laughs> so I kept on down the trail for about five minutes. And nothing looked familiar. And I'm thinking, OK, they had a map. They had a map. <laughs> I'm lost. Are you an idiot or what? <laughs> and I suddenly realized that I was on the wrong trail and that I was indeed very lost. <laughs> and so I turned around and went back up the trail and then rediscovered you know, where the, the right trail was. And I made it home. <laughs> the point being that it's very hard to change what we think, even when we see the map. And so it really is incumbent on us with the hard attitude of Holy Spirit teach me. Because if you've been taught things that are not biblical, even when you're shown from the Bible, you might say, that can't be right. No, that map is wrong. Not me. So. I want you to read the Bible as much as you can without filters. Now, I have done something most of my life, and I'm going to just tell you what I've done, and I'm going to give you an opportunity if you want to do the same thing. I actually color code my, my Bible. I just get colored pencils. They go with me everywhere. I have a little Bible case, and I keep, this is not for when I get bored with someone else's preaching. This is, I just, 
when I'm reading the Bible and I'm studying something, I will just color code it in a different color. So I might deal with something on what does the Bible say about God's character? And I'll do that a certain color while I'm reading through. What does it say about man? I'll do that a different color. What does it say about the Holy Spirit? I'll do that a different color. Now I use colored pencils because I've been around a long time. Uh, pencils about the only thing that doesn't bleed through the pages of your Bible. Uh, highlighters. Problem with a highlighter, you highlight something and over 10 years you've highlighted everything in the Bible and it's all yellow if your highlighter's yellow. And then you've it's a waste of time, you might as well start over. Uh, so if you use something that, that's different colors, you can identify different colors. You don't have to do that. That's just a clue that I've done. What it also does is it helps me when I'm looking up something, I know that it says something in Philippians about knowing God. And I know that I've done that in blue. I can flip to Philippians and go, there it is, because I find the, the blue part. So it just makes it easier. So color coding is a way. So as you're reading the Bible, let's literally ask the Holy Spirit to see if you can read it without filters. Now what is that? What are filters? There's a lot of basic filters that affect Christianity, but there could be things that you've learned. But for instance, there is a philosophical filter. Philosophy is, hey, this makes good sense. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes someone like Calvin was very philosophical in his approach, and sometimes we have a filter that is Calvinism, and we tend to read things from that filter. And what happens when you read things with a filter is that things that fit your preconceived idea, you see, and things that don't, you just don't see. It's like they've been redacted. And you just don't see it. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit one day shows us to you and you went, I've been reading the Bible all my life. I never saw that. None of you ever did that, right? Uh, naturalism is a filter. Okay, the whole idea of cessationism, that, that there are no miracles today. We'll talk about these later on, but sometimes we read it from that. So we kind of overlook this person who was manifesting a demon, our mind says, they just had epilepsy. They threw themselves on the ground and thrashed around, and that's epilepsy. Now, it could have been, but that's not what the Bible says. It says that they actually had a demon. Oh, how do we know that? Uh, another one is tradition. Religion is a traditional thing, but often we're taught things and we just see it that way. And we're not aware. Matthew 15, 6 says that by your tradition you nullify the word of God. So sometimes we just actually don't see what does the Bible actually say. Let me give you a, a real quick illustration. I just, this just happened to me a, a while back. Actually, I won't because I'm going to get there in just a few minutes. I'm going to get out of, out of order and then I'm going to get lost. On your notes, I've given you a chronological Bible. Okay? If you look under point two, number two. And what you realize is that how the books are put in the Bible are not chronological. They're not actually in order of how things happen. All of you knew that, Right? He went, wait, that shouldn't be there. And so uh, history from Genesis to 2 Chronicles. And then a pre-exile period, Isaiah to Zephaniah, with Esther being a contemporary of Ezekiel. A return, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. A post-return, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. And then the poetry... They've just taken all the poultry stuff and they stuck it together and they stuck it in one spot. But if you're going to read it as it was the order, then psalms that are by Moses would be after Deuteronomy. Did you know that there's psalms by Moses? There are. Not all the psalms in there are by David. What? I thought David wrote all those. No, he didn't. 
but there's some that Moses wrote. Now, they were just included with the poetry, but they should actually be hundreds of years before. Uh, Psalms by David would be uh, after 1 Samuel and Psalms by Solomon after 2 Samuel. And then here's one for you. Job is considered by most scholars to be the oldest book and therefore it should go sometime in the period of Genesis. But you can't actually cut Genesis apart and stick it in there so we just should make a a footnote in somewhere in the middle of Genesis and then add Job after Genesis. Now why is that important? And then after that, obviously, the New Testament. Why is that important? Because you need to understand the Bible was written progressively, not systematically. Okay, this was God's plan. God said, this is how I'm going to do it. You know how you learn math? You don't start when you're five years old in school with trigonometry. Someone doesn't give you a calculus book and say, here, learn this. Why? You start with numbers. You start with addition, subtraction, the simple stuff. Why? Because we learn progressively. And so what we see in the Bible is God revealing himself progressively. And so where things fit... What Job says about God is very, very early on, and it's not to be confused with the New Testament. It's progressive rather than systematic. Systematic, systematic theologies organize the Bible according to doctrines. Someone has determined these are the doctrines and we organize them and we put them in this form. The problem with that is that's not how God wrote the Bible. And so we end up with a very academic look at theology. The word theology literally means the study of God. You know that theology is not in the Bible? The word. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to study God. It tells us to know him. We're to study to show ourselves approved or be diligent. The Greek word can be translated either way. To show ourselves approved. But it doesn't say study God. So how did we get this whole approach to theology rather than relationship with God? Because we started taking doctrines and put them in some sort of organizational order rather than how God revealed it. So we're going to see... Paul, would you do me a favor and just turn that around? We're going to see that the progression of God's revelation of himself is actually a number of covenants. So you have a space in your notes. You're going to see that as we begin next week, the first four or five chapters of Genesis is an introduction to God's whole plan. It falls apart, and then we see the restoration of that plan throughout the Bible, and we see it as a series of covenants. Now, the Bible is actually written, around each covenant is some literature that has to do with that. And it's helpful if we understand. So, I'm going to draw it like a donut. This is the covenant. This is the literature around that covenant. And this covenant is with Noah. Okay? Then there's another covenant. And it's with Abraham. It has a little bit more. The reason that these things get bigger is that God's revelation of himself and his plan is growing as he's revealing more. He's building on what has gone before. You build on addition and subtraction, and eventually you can learn multiplication. And eventually you can learn division, and eventually you can learn algebra. 
and eventually you can learn other stuff. Then there's a, another covenant, which was with Moses. I'm using the people to identify them, but what this is, is this is the covenant, and the, this is the, the literature around, surrounding that covenant. So the Bible wasn't so much a story that God started here and finished here, that's all the same. It's a progression of covenants. And then there's another one with David. And then there's the one that they're all pointing to. Which is the new covenant. This is Jesus. This literature around it is all the New Testament. Okay? Now there's parts of these covenants pointing to this one, but these guys did not understand what God was saying to them in light of everything that he was going to reveal later on. And so we can't approach it as if they knew everything that was going to be revealed later on. Here's an illustration for you. God says to Abraham, come after me and I will make of you a great nation. Right? Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky or the sand on the, on the sea. I'll make of you a great nation. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Why did he believe God? Simply that God was going to make him a great nation. God didn't start a religion with Abraham. Abraham had no clue about a religion. God started a nation. We're going to see next week why that was important when we start with the original plan that then falls apart, and we'll see. Okay, you still with me? So what makes the Bible the Word of God? This is all the introduction stuff. Is it just because it's old? I kind of like that. The older something is, the more authority it has. Anything Glenn says is absolutely right. <laughs> the Bible's the word of God because it's what God has said. 2 Timothy 3.16. Do you know this? But I'm going to say it again. Just for... Uh, for those who might not, and for the recording. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word literally means God-breathed in the Greek. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's what God has said about himself and his ways. That's what the Bible is. It's God revealing himself. We don't determine what God's like. He tells us what he's like. And that's why we need to understand the Bible. It's God's revelation of himself. It's not what man says God should be like. It's not what tradition says God should be like. It's not what philosophy says God should be like. There was this philosopher uh, named Socrates who said, if there is a God, he would be timeless, immutable, unchangeable, and his, it's a funny word, but it literally means having no emotion. He would be Stoic, which is what the, the Greeks valued at that point. But see, that philosophy has impacted almost all study of theology from the time of Jesus till now. With a belief that God is timeless, immutable, and, it, and has no emotion. Irreparable is the, not irreparable, irreparable is the word, but it literally means no emotion. Where did that come from? Did it come from the Bible? It came from philosophy that we added to it. So, what makes a doctrine or a belief biblical? 
Three points I'm going to give you here in just a moment. This is answer Tony's question. So rules for interpretation. What makes a doctrine or belief biblical? A friend of mine once did a take on what Americans say, you know, when they go to court and they put their hand on the Bible and say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He said, we want the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. If it really is God's revelation of himself, we need to know the whole thing. The whole Bible is God's revelation. All of it. There is a guy named Darby, John Darby, who developed a system of belief called dispensationalism. And his belief basically says that each of these was a failed attempt by God to bring revelation. God said, this is my plan, and it didn't actually work. And so he had plan B. That didn't actually work, so he had plan C. Well, the result of that is uh, the whole dispensation that became very popular in the Schofield Study Bible in the middle of the last century, which affected, if you're Baptist, most of you Baptists actually have been taught this. Uh, it basically gave us this idea, we don't need the Old Testament. We just need the New Testament. Okay, we want the whole Bible. Now we'll talk about why in a little bit. Nothing but the Bible. We don't want to add to it or take away from it based on our choices or beliefs. There's something that's happened in our culture and that is that people tend to think that they can actually choose only what they want to believe. Truth isn't like that. Okay? But I'll get back to that in a second. Jeremiah 1.10. God calls Jeremiah, sends him as a prophet to the nation, and he says, I've called you to tear down, destroy, uproot, and pull down that you might plant and build. Sometimes the beliefs that we have have got to be undone before we can get biblical. So, Three points for some, recognizing whether something is actually a biblical belief or doctrine. This will affect you because you're going to do this as we go through this class, but it also will help you as you identify other things. First point is, is it what God said? Is it accurate in translation? Is it accurate in translation? What God said is the Bible. Not what I would have liked God to say. Not what I thought God should have said, but what God actually said. So is it accurate in translation? Okay, now, let me set you free here for a moment. I'm going to take an aside. What Augustine wrote in his autobiography, The City of God, which became the foundation for much of Western theology is not the Bible. So questioning Augustine is not saying I'm questioning the Bible. I'm questioning because Augustine is not God. What Augustine said is not the Bible. Or Calvin. Or Wesley. Or Russ Doty. So is it accurate in translation? Now, just as an aside before we get into this, there are a number of word-for-word -word translations. You guys mostly you know this. You've heard me talk about it. The English Standard Version, ESV, the uh, New King James, uh, the New American Standard, the Revised Standard, all word-for-word -word translations. problem with them, especially some of the older ones like the Revised Standard Version, is that in being word for word, they're often hard to understand because they don't really flow real well. And so there are some thought for thought translations. Now, thought for thought translations is someone who reads what the Bible says in the original language, either Greek or Hebrew, and they say, this is what it says, so I'm going to co convey that thought in a translation. Okay, the problem is that they're determining what the thought is. 
Okay? That doesn't mean that it's wrong by any means. The NIV is a thought-for-thought translation. They say it very clearly in the, in the early uh, translations of the NIV. And so, while it might have the idea, I've heard, I heard a guy preach once on a, a word. He was talking about God never remembers our sin, never holds our sin against us, never. He says, never, 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 never. Say never, say never. Everyone said never, never. We went on for probably three or four minutes. Never! Problem is, when you actually look at it, that word's not there. Now, it doesn't mean that the concept's wrong. Never, never? Never there. And so, uh, sometimes we can, can miss what it says a little bit. And so, we focus on something that actually isn't what the Bible says. And so, we just need to be aware of that. And then, there are paraphrases. A paraphrase is not a translation at all. A paraphrase is taking a different language, like English or Spanish or whatever it is, and then putting that in that language that they're using. So, we're going to take... English, and we're going to paraphrase it to make it more understandable. Okay? A paraphrase isn't a translation. Do you understand it? So the message is a paraphrase. Contrary to to popular belief, the Passion Translation is a paraphrase. Even though it says translation, it's not a translation. Okay? It's a paraphrase. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that you need to understand it's not going back to the original of what God said. And so if we're going to build a doctrine about God, it better be on what God said. And we'll get to to some of this. I know this is a bit boring at this point. You just have to put up with me. It'll get better in the weeks to come, I promise. For instance, that philosophy of timelessness, there is a a uh, wonderful teacher, a great guy, C.S. Lewis, who developed the whole concept of God being outside of time. And so he developed this concept called the eternal now, that God is in a, an eternal present and there's no past or no future with God, which actually helps us to understand some things, but it's not what the Bible says. It's good philosophy. Now some of you are going, well, I'm not sure that that's not what the Bible says. Good. I'm not telling you what you should believe. I'm telling you how to study. And so you'll take a look at it. So it needs to be accurate in translation, first point. But also needs to be accurate in context. You guys don't know this, but let me use the illustration. You know that the Bible says, and I quote, there is no God. Uh, unquote. Did you know that? That's what it says. There is no God. In context, it actually says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Makes a big difference if it's in context, right? But it's not just the context of the words. But it's, what did it actually mean at the time? And then the context of the bigger picture. What does it mean in the context of the whole Bible? What else does the Bible say about that? Does the Bible say something else about it? Or do, do we build our whole theology on a single word or a single verse when there's five others that say something slightly different. And we say, ah, oh, maybe there's more to this. I'm just setting the, the ground rules for how we do that uh, under, under part of the uh, iceberg, under the water. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says that there's no prophecy that's... Uh, I better turn into it and read it because I'll get it wrong. And then 
It says, it was to Peter. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about a, a prophetic word. He's talking about what the Bible says. And so let me say this. In understanding the Bible, it's not what I feel it says. It's what it actually says. Okay? There is... I'm going to get sidetracked here for some of you. The rest of you just take a nap right now and come back in five minutes. For the last hundred years, Western culture had been influenced by different philosophers. One of them, Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant basically had this philosophy that you can't know anything of the, the outside world. His belief was that you only know the impression of it on your mind, which is ridiculous because then how do you know there's even an outside world? Uh, but it's, but it, it shifted much of thinking from there being an objective reality to everything being subjective. It's only what I think, what I feel. Now that's affected the study of literature in universities in the last 40 years, 30 years, where it used to be, what did the author intend when he wrote this? Now it's who cares what the author intended, what do I feel? What does it say to me? Well, that idea has affected much of the church where it's not what did God say and what did he mean? It's what do I think it says to me? What do I feel? I have my own revelation. Now, God can actually speak to you something from the word that's for you, but that doesn't change what the word actually means. Mary and I were praying about traveling once and uh, God's, we felt God just said to us in that context, Ezra 6.4, which says that the expense will be paid from the king's treasury. And so in the context that we're praying, we felt God spoke to us specifically that he would take care of the cost of our traveling. That's not what Ezra 6.4 is about that God will take care of the cost of your traveling. But it was a rhema word to us, but that doesn't change the reality of what it actually meant at the time. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay? And so it's not our private interpretation. God can speak to us. Years ago I heard, a, I was at a conference with a Jack Hayford, and Jack Hayford said that uh, when he was younger he drank a lot of soda in the U.S. called Dr. Pepper. He loved Dr. Pepper and he drank it all the time. He probably drank four or five cans every day. And uh, those who were part of his leadership team knew he liked Dr. Pepper, so even though they didn't like it, they kept some in their fridge so that when he came, they would give it to him. And one day when he was praying, I felt the Holy Spirit said, I want you to stop drinking Dr. Pepper. Okay. Well, that could be a discipline for him. It could be something to do with his, his health. Who knows what it was? He said, yep. I said, okay. He said, it's one thing to hear God say that to me. It's another thing to then take that and say, God said, Dr. Pepper's wrong for everybody. You can't drink Dr. Pepper. See, God did speak to him, but you can't universalize. You can't change what the Bible says because God highlights something to you in speaking to you personally. Are you still with me? So that's what it means. It's not open to private interpretation. It's not just my revelation. I was preaching uh, once on Matthew 18 about kingdom relationships and someone came to me afterwards to tell me, you know, God gave me a revelation and, and that this doesn't mean any of that. It actually means this. And I went, ah, so did God speak that? No, God showed me that that's what it actually means. And I went, but you know, that's not what it means. You can't change what it means because you feel like you had some special revelation. Are you still with me? What I'm saying is this. 
What God said is the Bible. We need to be accurate in translation, but also accurate in context. What does it mean to those who heard it, and what else does the Bible say? And then thirdly, accurate in emphasis. What I mean by that is where does this fit into all the other truth that God's revealed? What emphasis did God put on it? Someone said, when a truth becomes the truth, it quickly leads to untruth. When we say, it's only about grace, the Bible's all about grace. Grace is the unmerited honor and favor of God. Anything that talks about anything we have to do is contrary to that, and therefore it should be removed from the Bible. Is grace a truth of the Bible? Absolutely. Is it the only truth of the Bible? The Bible says God is love. Is God love? Yes. Is God only love? It also says God is holy. So our responsibility is to marry those two together and say, what does that actually mean? We can't say, I like this part. I like the love part. I don't like the holy part. <laughs> Forget that. I like the love part. And, and, and by the way, I'm going to define for myself what love is, which is that God is just accepting and tolerant. And no matter what I do, it doesn't matter because he loves me. And so there really is no such thing as sin. And therefore, there's no need for righteousness because there's no sin. And so everyone's going to get saved in fact, everyone is saved because God just loves us. Pardon? Yeah. How could a loving God send people to hell? But the truth is, God is love. But there's more. So how does that fit in with everything else God has revealed? So something isn't biblical if I take it out of the context of the whole revelation that God has of himself and his ways in the Bible. Still with me. Let me tell you, there was a guy named A.W. Pink who was a Calvinist. I'm not picking on Calvinists tonight. If you're Calvinist, you'll, you'll, you'll have to have grace for me. But A.W. Pink said something, and I quote, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the Son around which the universe of all other doctrines revolves. Wow, that's a really wonderful statement. Does the Bible say that? Is that the emphasis the Bible puts on that? See, we just take it and we push it out of emphasis and pretty soon... We've gone a little bit off base. Any questions so far? Is anyone still awake? We're going to get into the Bible next week. This was all the introduction. You put up with this. If you come back, it'll be better. Did you pass out? Uh, if you don't come back, it won't be better. Which is a good question. There are obviously other books. Uh, what happened is that they had a very, very strict, uh, when they were looking at this, uh, standard of identifying. Did the person whose name is on it actually write it? Okay? Book of Enoch wasn't written by Enoch. It was written hundreds of years later, if not thousands. Uh, there's a book of Jude 
Not, not, not the book of Jude in the Bible, but there's another. No, sorry. Is it? No. Another book of Jude. That was written 100 years after Jesus, 200 years after Jesus. And so the guys who put this together said, okay, is there evidence that this was written by the person who is proposed, whose name is on it? That was one of the top priorities, criterias. Huh? Except for Hebrews, which doesn't actually have a name. It's written to the Hebrews. And so it's not real clear who wrote it, but it seems to be in keeping with uh, Paul. But the second thing was, is it in keeping with the, uh, the rest of the, the teaching? Is it, if it's something totally out of the blue, you know, that Jesus already has returned, you know, and all of a sudden everyone goes, well, that doesn't actually fit. So there were a lot of criterias. And that's a, that's a whole other story. We can get into that. My, there, let me say this. We can go deeper in almost everything over this class. And if you have questions like that, I have a ton of resources that I would love to give to you or point you to uh, that will, will help you deal with those. I can, if you're really into understanding Calvinism, we'll touch it briefly, but I can give you a ton of things to read and you can get as deep as you want. Uh, I can give you tons of stuff. Uh, if creation and evolution is a thing that is really important to you, I can give you a ton of, of references. We're not going to deal with that because this revelation doesn't actually deal with that. It just assumes. It assumes two things. One, it assumes that God exists. We can go through a whole philosophical argument. We can take hours and I can show you all the cosmological arguments and, and arguments about God's existence and show you, prove it without touching the Bible that God exists. We're assuming that you believe God exists, that you're here, okay? So that's for something outside this class. Uh, we might do at some point something on an apologetic. We might do something on creation and evolution. We won't do that much in this class. Bible says God created. We're going to assume that that was the case. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you individually. But uh, some of the questions, we won't take a whole lot of time uh, simply because they won't be questions that would affect everybody. Does that make sense? And we have limited time. So uh, very good question, though. Uh, there's, there's a whole lot of really good resources that we'll, we'll do, and I can tell you some of those afterwards. Uh, but, yeah, it really came down to was there a consensus. Now, by the time they actually wrote all this stuff down, there was a general consensus in the church. These were guys, this was these guys. Because they, they, it was all, most of, especially the gospels were written quite a few years after Jesus. But they were shared. There was an oral tradition where they would, would uh, pass things along orally. And so, well the letters to the churches, yeah, they actually came later, but the gospels I said. And so, the gospels were written quite a bit after Jesus. But it wasn't like nobody had ever heard of them, you know. So 200 years later, a new gospel comes around and everyone goes, where'd this come from? You know, well, that's, it was the gospel of, what are the guys, I don't know. <laughs> Barnabas, yeah. Gary, gospel of Gary. <laughs> gospel of Tim. God's revealed to us what we need. And that's our belief. But what we're going to see is that the result as we work through it is going to be that we're more and more in love with Jesus. More understanding and less distracted. You will not become a theologian because of this class. If you want to become a theologian, I can give you all the stuff to read, tons of books. I've read four different systematic theologies. And so I can tell you the difference between this one and that one, between Finney's systematic theology and Calvin's uh, institutes. 
I can tell you the difference between uh, Rodman Williams' systematic theology and uh, MacArthur's. Uh, If you want to study all that, I'll give it all to you. You can read it all. Uh, The whole idea is that trying to condense an understanding. When I was in university, my major was Bible. I studied Greek, Hebrew, all that kind of stuff. The greatest impact I had was a professor who said to us, read the Bible first. Before you read commentaries, before you read theologies, before you read popular books, read the Bible. Let the Bible determine your view of God and not everyone else. And so I set about doing that. I've had about 40 years, 50 years, preparing for this class tonight. Does that mean I have all the answers? No. I'm, I'm learning every day. The whole goal of this class will, will give you some of the high points of biblical doctrine that hopefully you'll be filling in for all the rest of your life. That you'll be growing deeper and fuller and a greater understanding and a greater revelation. When we're talking about an eternal God, when we're talking about an infinite God. We can't expect that we're going to figure him out in a few months. In fact, we can't expect that we're going to figure him out in a lifetime. I don't think I have all the answers by any means. Uh, But I enjoy the process. So, why don't you bow your head? Lord, you know that there's something in our hearts of just a desire for you and to know you. But with that, there's a sense in our heart that you're doing something on the earth in extending your kingdom that we have not seen in all of human history. And my expectation is that we're going to see thousands of people get saved in this city. So much so that there's, all the churches won't be able to handle it. And it's going to be an army of priests, of believers, who are leading and discipling and protecting and planting and leading churches. Lord, I believe we're going to see dozens and dozens of churches planted in this city, let alone across the nation. But at the same time, while your kingdom's advancing, we realize that the world is getting darker and darker. Satan is still the god of this world. Deception, the lies of the enemy are becoming more and more accepted. Things that 40 years ago were just not even considered are now being celebrated in the culture. And you want us to stand firm. You want us to be those who aren't deceived. But not only are we not deceived, but we're able to teach others. And so, Lord, we just say our dependence is on you. Holy Spirit, would you reveal the truth of the word? And more than that, the intimacy with God. Jesus, you said this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and the Son whom you've sent. Well, that's our eternal life. Not that we study you. Not that we study theology. Not that we understand all the doctrines, but that we know you. And so, Lord, we just want to ask that you would strip back the filters, take off the glasses that have caused us to see Things that maybe aren't exactly how you are or how you work or have caused us to doubt. And so, Lord, we just say, we need you. We need you. As we humble ourselves before you and acknowledge our need for you, you say that you will pour out grace.
Lord, I thank you for these people who fought through opposition to get here. These people who will be uh, those who will stand firm in these last days. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.